People of Earth of Tension, this is a voice speaking to you from thousands of miles beyond your planet. Look to your sun for a warning. Look to your sun for a warning. recorded a number of their messages on tape. The results, to say the least, have been startling. Hi, everybody, and welcome again to another episode of the IMMP podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad, he's my son, and it is still June, which means it is still Ray Harryhausen month. Yay! <laughs> So we're going through Ray Harryhausen's uh, body of work. Last week, we uh, last episode, we talked- clay frame by frame animated <laughs> body <right>. of work. <laughs> um, we talked about the two earliest movies in which he was like, the lead effects guy. So we skipped Mighty Joe Young, which I didn't see when I was a kid. And now we're going to the next two. And they come together pretty well because the previous two, we talked about how they was kind of a similar theme between those two movies. These next two were more nuts and bolts science fiction-y. These were like almost textbook, <laughs> like cover page of a classic sci-fi novel kind of science fiction-y. So the two movies we're talking about are Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Dun, dun, dun. And 20 Million Miles to Earth. I just keep thinking of him as 20 million miles to Earth versus the flying saucers, <laughs> which is a hybrid that I don't know what happens. I kind of like that. Oh, yeah. I can imagine someone trying to create the the Harryhausen verse, pulling all of these together. There's a lot of destroyed architecture in this verse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No question. So you can imagine from Earth versus the flying saucers... There are a bunch of flying saucers. There are a bunch of flying saucers. And there's more uh, crazy military shenanigans. <laughs> I mean, last time we got uh, Operation Experiment. And this time we immediately start out with Operation Skyhook. And that is uh, essentially a program to launch a, a constellation of satellites, right? Yeah, it's like launching an orbital ring of communications satellites. So pretty much... This is entirely started out by attempting to set up a better cell network. Oh, are they communication? I thought they were like... They're um, like sensor, but they also had uh, radio transmission systems, from oh, what I understood. Yeah, or maybe that was just to be able to transmit the yeah. observation data, but they're like observing, but they can also then communicate to each other and back down to Earth. And I'm like, that's, <laughs> that's research satellites with cell connection. But uh, but there's a problem with, with Operation Skyhook because something keeps frying their satellites and knocking them out of orbit. So they'll send it up and like by the end of the night, something smacked them back down again in a flaming heap. And they keep firing them up into the sky, just trying again. And of course, what's happening is they are being attacked by flying saucers. Absolutely. Now, at the beginning of the movie, they don't really launch us right into Operation Skyhook. We get this kind of overview of the fact that there are UFOs, there are flying saucers being sighted all around the world. Today, from the skies of California, the fields of Kansas, the rice paddies of the Orient, the air lanes of the world, 
come persistent reports of UFOs, unidentified flying objects, which we have come to know as flying saucers. And everybody's military's response is to shoot them if we can't identify them. Headquarters of the Hemispheric Defense Command in Colorado Springs issued an order. All military installations are to fire on sight at any flying objects not identifiable. And then no one seems to, like, figure out the connection between the satellites going down and the flying saucers that seem to be openly showing up places until it's almost pointed directly out to the main characters. And I have to acknowledge the inspiration for this movie. It says in in the credits, it was suggested by the book Flying Saucers from Outer Space by Major Donald Keough. Wait. He was a... A, a big figure in early UFO literature, in early modern UFO literature. Um, huh. He wrote Flying Saucers from Outer Space. He wrote, I think, uh, Flying Saucers Are Real, The Flying Saucer Conspiracy. Oh, goodness. So this guy has a theme that he's sticking to. And Donald Keough was a United States Marine aviator, a major in the U.S. Marines, and starting in the early 50s, he started writing about the uh, the UFOs that had become uh, such a big deal starting in 1947. And it this was the thing. So many movies were being made about flying saucers and about UFOs, and so many books were being written about them. I always thought there was something... I mean, there are a lot of really weird books written by ex-military people. You don't say. But there was something really looking to get to something true in Kia. Whether he got there, of course, is a totally different question. But there's something about that that carries over into this movie. There's a certain... There's a methodology, almost? Right, yeah. It's um, in crime fiction, the police procedural is such a, um, a, a, an important subgenre. This is kind of the military procedural story. Oh, Oh, absolutely. The fact that this has an entire boardroom scene, more than one actually, where people sit down with different people from different agencies, discuss the information they have, make deals to exchange information on certain projects in order to put people on the same page, create joint task forces, and then all leave with a time frame of when they've got to be back to report <laughs> with more info of like a couple of weeks is way more accurate than it. <laughs> <laughs> kind of has to be. I've, now, seen, I've seen a lot more disaster films where one guy can run into a room and yell that something needs to happen. This is one of the first I've ever seen where a guy needs to schedule a meeting to do that. <laughs> and I kind of applaud this aspect. I've got a list in my notes of the different sci-fi tropes this, is, this kind of kicked off that we see in later movies. One that I didn't include that I now think I should have was the meetings and Senate debates from the Star Wars prequels. Oh, goodness, you're <laughs> right. It is the Star Wars prequels. It's the part that I liked out of them. Oy. But it is it's a very methodical, procedural kind of story, and yet they it's peppered with action and weirdness and enough to really keep you engaged. It's not all meetings and decisions. This doesn't mean that it's science and it's sci-fi <laughs> doesn't go wildly off the rails oh, as well. But It, it absolutely does. You know, one of the, the tropes uh, that uh, I think this really kicks off is that idea of aliens coming not 
necessarily because they are their first instinct is military and they want to destroy humanity and take over the earth they're refugees mm-hmm. in some ways they are their their planet or their star system disintegrated they need a new home and they've been trying to reach out and talk to the one scientist who think they think would understand them and he's like missed their messages because of the way in which they've communicated with him. Well, one of the big points is the fact that the aliens exist moving much faster than we do, which means that you have to literally record what they're saying and slow it down. Yes, that's right. This is the movie about the Nightcore aliens coming to attack because <laughs> everything's played at four times speed. <laughs> I, I was delighted by that, but also it's really weird because, like, an entire key part of this movie can is almost like him checking his answering machine and hearing, like, three missed messages, and it's just like, please show up. Please show up and tell your military to stop shooting us. <laughs> okay, that's it. We're gonna have to shoot back, because you never showed up. It's like, no, 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 no. Yeah, so you've got... That's an interesting tension. We've got the scientist who wants to at least find out what these aliens are about and what they're looking for and why they're sending all these flying saucers. And the military, who doesn't want to take the risk of waiting to talk to these things, they just want to develop a weapon to destroy them. And that that really gets boosted when the first time they try to fire on them, it they knock one guy down, and then immediately the aliens pull out the vaporizing rays and just... <laughs> jump cut people out of existence i do like the fact that the aliens are not depicted as being invincible or invulnerable or even that much higher than than 20th century america in terms of technology there's certain specific leaps they have made and yet they are susceptible to bullets yeah they're at least their their spacesuits are when they um when they land and disembark and that prevents it from being this enormous epic of we have a totally insurmountable problem in front of us. It keeps it in that sort of believable military scale. And it means that when our heroes do develop a counterweapon and in the vague kind of discussions with the aliens, the aliens are presenting information that our characters can understand and such, it doesn't feel lopsided. It's not... The aliens are weirdly human in some ways. They're just an alien humanoid in that sense, instead of being completely unknowable. You could almost imagine this being turned around a little bit and being one of those stories of the aliens are humans from the future. Uh, they, they, are, they are knowable, and they are, are understandable, and they seem to understand us because they've, they've monitored our communications and things like that. that. That aspect is something I want to put a pin in for the end. Okay. And they've also learned about the human race and about our military and other things because they can take people and read their brains and learn everything that the person knows and also kind of use the person as sort of a... a Space zombie Muppet? Yeah. That 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 gets really awkward and really creepy really fast. Right. Especially since one of the uh uh the people they do that with is the Air Force General, who is also the father of one of our main characters. Yeah. Because this is this is also one of those films that actually has a power couple at the start. 
They are already together. They are scientists. They are skilled. They kind of balance each other out. And it's really just these two tackling the problems. Now, her father gets alien mind zapped. And our lead main guy still gets to be the dashing scientist that can understand what's happening and hopefully find a solution. But the fact that they start out together is delightful. You Marlowe playing Dr. Russell Marvin, who is the the scientist and engineer behind this Skyhook program launching these satellites. Uh, we've got Joan Taylor as Carol Marvin. They're newlyweds. It becomes clear early on that she was a secretary in his organization, and they met and fell in love and got married. And she becomes a really you know, important part of this problem-solving team. Oh, yeah. And Morris Ankrum as the, the Brigadier General, her father, who is the military lead for this Skyhook program. And he's the first person that we see them abduct and turn into a brain zombie. Which they don't do too many times, but they do it enough to be very creepy. Yeah. So that, that's how they learn about us. And as I think you were pointing out, Ian, we learn about them. Humans learn about them just by kind of filling in the gaps and paying attention to some of the details that the aliens let slip when they are talking to people on their spaceship and such. One one thing to point out, the, the aliens move super fast, so when they bring the people onto their spaceship, they speed them up to match so that they can talk with them. And this results in a little moment where it's a proving time is moving faster because the humans can't feel their own pulses. And the aliens say, you're moving faster than your own heartbeat. And I'm just like, that means you are in incredible pain and cannot <laughs> move. And And your watch has stopped. It's like, um... Yeah, this this doesn't work. How can I? Yeah, you know, moving independent of my the my heartbeat. I'm moving independently of the mechanism of the watch on my wrist. It's you gotta do a little better than that, guys. Yeah. So they do a bit of hand wave for that, but there's this entire <laughs> like in between military debrief one and military debrief two is alien debrief, where they have a meeting on the beach and go into a, a UFO and talk with the aliens. And get info dumped about, our planet was messed up. We came here to talk. You shot at us. We're shooting back. Don't believe us? Watch your, watch your military ship. Your military ship is gone. Now, we're going to take over. And at that point, there are, there are some interesting similarities, I think, between this movie and another movie that uh, you, Marlowe was in, though not as the main character. Oh? The Day the Earth Stood Still. Oh, very much so. And that was um, uh, a few years before this. That was 1951. Okay. And it also had those tropes of this kind of negotiation and standoff between humans and the alien force. Although in that case, it was one flying saucer plus a guy and a robot. And here it's, it's fleets of flying saucers. No idea how many they've got, but apparently quite a few, because the humans are able to take a few of them down with the magnet gun that they develop. Yeah, they build like a, a sound and magnet cannon. And they were able to, uh, to field a few of them. Oh, I'm just realizing that the way to stop the night core aliens was a base cannon. <laughs> okay, my brain's breaking for a sec. <laughs> and of course... The the thing people are going to the, this movie for is the 
last act where there's this tremendous battle, the the payoff of the title, Earth versus the Flying Saucers, where the uh, the Flying Saucers, we see them mostly around the Washington, D.C. area. I got the impression this wasn't the only place they were attacking them. Well, like they there's this big dramatic work of them building the first of these cannons and testing it out. And they test it out on the alien ship that comes down tracking them to try to stop them from building it. <laughs> and it's it's there that they, after having already fought them a little before, both prove that the cannon works and prove that once you take out the spaceships, the aliens are susceptible to bullets really easily. <laughs> and so it becomes this, you know, knock out the spaceships and conventional weapons work. And it also gives our main characters blueprints for a weapon that works and a bunch of defeated aliens who they can study the tech of and make a better system out of. And I take it that this information gets sent everywhere real quick, <laughs> that they are building these cannons everywhere to defend all these places and improving their own stuff, reviewing like the alien space suits and what we've learned about them and such. So one of the more recent movies this reminded me of was Alien Nation. Don't know if you've seen that, but it has this idea not. of, in, in that movie, it's one giant spaceship, but it's aliens who come to Earth because they need a new place to live, and the issues of them now being part of our uh, human society. But also, I think this the, uh, another movie that owes a lot to this, of course, is Independence Day. A lot. <laughs> Because we see a lot of fighting of UFOs over Washington, D.C., and that, of course, includes a lot of really cool Ray Harryhausen model work of flying saucers crashing into iconic Washington, D.C. architecture. Well, before the humans even get a good shot at them, there's a lot of very clear things of a flying saucer flying over a thing, something happening underneath the saucer. In Harryhausen's case, it's this their own radar dish cannon thing. Then a beam of light hitting something, flashing special effects for the time, and the thing it pointed at is gone. <laughs> that is very much Independence Day. You know, the gate opening up underneath the ship and the giant pillar of light vaporizing something. It's the same sort of thing, but with Harryhausen's stop motion and uh, film painting for getting that kind of flashing light destruction effect. And it's especially interesting. I think one of the things that makes this distinctive as a Harryhausen movie is there are no creatures involved. Yeah. Um, technically, I guess the aliens in their suits are biological, but I don't think any of that was stop motion. I think that was guys in awkward suits. And a couple of Muppety things. Right. Yeah, that's right. And the rest of it was flying saucers and flying saucer-related destruction. There were no living monsters. And that's... I, I, I'd be hard-pressed to find, to think of another Harryhausen movie like that. Yeah, they, they stop motion those. They stop motion a few of the aliens walking out of ships, but then they'll cut away to people in suits to give context of scale and such there and before cutting back. So they don't even have any long shots of non-mechanical Harryhausen effect. And I kind of think that if the aliens, the flying saucer pilots in their spacesuits had been done completely by Harryhausen's team as stop motion, they would have looked a lot better. Oh. Because what we get, the aliens we see, I mean, 
not many points of articulation. No. I mean, they are... They're, 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 the, the legs and arms of their spacesuits appear to just to be solid tubes without elbows or knees, and they just kind of waddle about. I will give this point, though. The aliens, once we get the helmets off of them, are so time-decayed ancient with their sped-up lifespans and their destroyed planet and such that they turn to dust pretty quickly after being <laughs> desuited. That might be a bit of a... Yeah, you're not going to put articulation points. Our arms are so brittle they will break. <laughs> Maybe that's on the it. inside. Maybe this is a little bit of like full body cast spacesuits for very crippled aliens. Yeah, they did talk about the fact that these spacesuits were we're calling them spacesuits, but they really were life support suits because they're weak and decayed. But maybe it was also they needed that physical exoskeleton. And one problem with as much as I agree, like Harryhausen could have done some amazing stuff working on the suits. They also needed all the other people to be able to pick up the suit props later. Yeah. When they defeated it and taken some tech. And I don't want to lose the everyone stand around the suit because we've figured it out and we're trying it out. <laughs> and the very bad science of the we think we know what this does. And our main guy just puts the hat on <laughs> and starts taking and starts telling people to take notes. It's very right. suddenly it's, he has the advanced senses that this helmet gives the flying saucer pilots, which also implies that the flying saucer pilots have very similar base <laughs> senses to us, which is yeah. another like point towards the they they were humanoid category. But it's. It's bad science to just throw this on your head. A lot of that also reminded me very much, speaking of things that I think were influenced by this, UFO. Oh, yeah. One of our earliest podcast episodes was about the TV series UFO from uh, uh, Jerry and Sylvia Anderson. Oh, this, this, was in this was one of those key things, I think, UFO. Just the design style of the magnet cannon they build <laughs> is very much similar with its radar dish and its multiple protrusions on the inside that have this coil-like effect to them. That looks like something I would have expected off of the top of one of the UFO systems. So I really would say that Earth versus the Flying Saucers was kind of foundational when it comes to post-war UFO movies. Oh, yeah. And the other movie that we watched was also a more science fiction-y spaceflight movie for Harryhausen. But this was 20 million miles to Earth. And this does not involve alien spacecraft coming to Earth. It involves a United States Air Force spacecraft coming back to Earth. And what it has inside. Yeah, this is... This is a souvenir retrieval trip gone wrong. <laughs> but it starts with fishermen. Yeah, a little fishing village on the southern coast of Sicily. And that's where the returning spacecraft crashes into the ocean. That is one of the coolest dramatic openings I've seen in a while. Because we have no extra context, really, compared to what the people we are now following are seeing. And that's something that I see in modern movies more as an understanding of how to build a tension curve. But seeing it in this film was great because it's just like, we're going to absolutely 
throw you into a bit of a deep end just as much as these other people around this thing going on. We'll fill you in later, but for right now, their tension is your tension, their fear is your fear. The things they don't focus on, do you notice them or no? And things like that, it's like, uh... And it, it, it really does, as you say, heighten that tension where we're following this, this family of fishermen who everybody is running away from this ship. And one of these guys says, we have to go back. There may be people in there who need help. It's like, oh, man, you're not saving the cat. You're saving the, the, the either aliens or astronauts. I don't, we don't know what's in this spaceship yet. But, man, I'm going to follow you and root for you no matter what you're doing from now on. Oh, yeah. And calling out the other guy of the what happened to being the bravest man in all of Sicily. <laughs> right. Like, uh, we're going to be true to our word. Dang it. Oh, dang it. Okay. And sure enough, he climbs into the, the ship. They, they get to the, the, the not yet sunk spaceship in the water. And there's a, a breach in the hull. And they go through and they actually save some people. Which is creaking and full of steam and smoke and really nice audio work. A slight Geiger counter style tick that gets louder the deeper they go and quieter as they leave. Yes, yes. Good sound design. Good sound design all throughout this one. And the set design inside that spaceship I liked because it was it was believably awkward and tight and complex. It wasn't, oh, this is a spaceship, so it must be all clean lines. It was this is a spaceship built by it turns out it's a U.S. Air Force uh, spaceship. This is built by government military contractors. It is like this weird combination of a... It's a submarine uh, the, strapped yeah. to a missile. Yeah, it's the inside of a submarine combined with the inside of a, um, a B-52 bomber. And with the outside looking like a, a record album spaceship from the 70s. It's really amazing. But it was... The fact that they then have to deal with the the tight quarters and the strange environment and the smoke and the sparks, that's a, a really tension-filled scene. Oh, yeah. But they go in and they find, in the area that they can access, they find three people. One guy is definitely dead. One guy is remarkably intact. And one guy is pretty beaten up. And so they bring the two survivors out and get away as the rest of the ship finally creaks its last and sinks under the sea. And word gets out then to, and this is like maybe the only scene that doesn't take place in Italy. The entire movie takes place in Italy, but back in the U.S., there are the people, the, the the ground control crew, and the the people behind this flight to venus are really bummed that apparently the spacecraft crashed into the ocean and then they get word that there were survivors and they're just thrilled that there were a couple of survivors of this trip to venus and we get the we, we learn later there were like 17 guys in yeah. this ship and two of them made it out of the ship and one of whom doesn't survive very long no yeah he, he get he survives just long enough to hand over his notes and be shaken violently at, uh, for questions by his captain <laughs> who comes out remarkably unscathed and dashing <laughs> and the the the, the poor uh, scientist who doesn't survive very long after 
being taken out of the ship also becomes the reason for explaining the, I guess, kind of one of the MacGuffin aspects of this, which is apparently breathing on Venus is hard. Who knew? Yeah. And that's why they need to study more about what they learned there to make new respirator systems to let people visit Venus again. Because I because they're going to go back? Why not? You bought a season pass, I guess. <laughs> you know? Well, I think they said something about they found some like really valuable minerals or things on yeah. Venus. This, this was a, a, a resource-gathering first trip. But there's something else they brought back with them. And while everyone is busy and distracted by the survivors and getting them medical attention and such, the young boy finds the container that washes up on shore. Yes. Pepe, the young boy in this Fisher family, who is obsessed with the country of Texas. <laughs> the country of Texas. And he wants to be a cowboy. He wants to get a cowboy hat. And he finds this thing and figures out somebody he could sell it to. Oh, yeah. He finds the thing and opens up this container and pulls out the the large jello blob inside <laughs> and immediately goes to sell that. I don't understand why he didn't try to sell it in the container. Well, the container was marked with US Air Force markings. Oh. This was apparently a sample container from the uh the mission and he didn't want too many questions to be asked. He didn't want people to force him to return it to the Air Force before he could sell it. Uh, good he point. sells it to the zoologist who happens to be nearby, touring the country in a van. Uh, he lives in Rome, but he's now down here in, in Sicily and with his beautiful daughter, my granddaughter, who is not quite through medical school, but is on her way to becoming a doctor. And is the best, and is <laughs> therefore the most qualified doctor in the area, which ties her into getting these uh, Air Force men medical help. Meanwhile, her dad is dealing with this new thing that he bought. Which is kind of awesome. Yeah, he's never seen anything like it. Because he, um, yeah, he never saw anything like this, sort of an egg without a shell or something, maybe. And then something emerges from it. And it's claymation monster time. <laughs> Although it's tiny desk-sized claymation yes. monster time. It starts out, it, yeah, it's about the size of a shoebox, and it, it stands up and it walks around, and he's amazed, and he wants to know more about where this came from. It's Harryhausen with no forced perspective. And it's the design of this monster is great. It's kind of simian. It's kind of like a monkey. It's kind of like a lizard. It's kind of like a catfish. It's got yeah, it's very catfish like with these whiskery gill-like features. And it's very, it's very uh, scale-like skin. It's an example of Harryhausen making something seem very alien and unearthly. Not in an H.R. Giger way of just making it utterly weird. But by combining things that are recognizable and that are usually not combined. Giger takes a person, disassembles them, and then puts all the pieces wrong like an Ikea hack. <laughs> Harryhausen takes a silhouette of a person and colors it in with the wrong markings. And it makes something that is understandable in its symmetry and its in how it might move around an environment, it walks like a man, but it's not one, kind <laughs> of. It gives a different, it's a different part of that uncanniness. And we follow this creature, and this creature then becomes the driving force of this plot. 
because the Air Force wants to study this creature because that's what's going to help them learn how to breathe on Venus. And that's apparently why they brought it back. And of course, the zoologist wants to study this because there's never been anything like this before. And the Air Force can't really tell him what it is or where it came from. And the creature itself isn't malevolent. The creature itself wants to be safe and find food, which in its case apparently is sulfur. And oh, also, by the way, it grows. It grows a lot. It grows quickly. It quickly goes from shoebox size to adult chimpanzee size, eventually to adult human size, eventually to kaiju size. It's Yeah, it's, this and it doesn't seem to have an upper limit theoretically once it's here. It's yeah. This is this is the this is a gaseous monster that will fill the container <laughs> space available and we have put it on the container of earth. Danger. And I may have exaggerated a little bit when I say kaiju size, but it definitely it's 30, 40 feet tall eventually. Or? Yeah. I think it gets properly halted before it reaches that, but it was definitely on that trend. And this is one movie in which I would have to study it a little more to be sure of this. But I do think that scale isn't quite as consistent as it sometimes is with Harryhausen at his best. Yeah. I get the impression that when it was, oh, they, they figure out how to capture it by, uh, at some point and how to keep it sedated by running electricity through it. It's another thing that's kept still <laughs> via electricity. My Harryhausen theory continues. The size that it was like laying out on the the giant table they had it on when it was sedated it seemed bigger then to me than it does later when surprise it breaks free and it gets loose and it wrestles a dino uh, 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 wrestles an elephant yeah it's scaled it seemed like it was smaller when it was wrestling the elephant than it looked maybe it's i don't know the size of the room it was in but it looked bigger when it was laid out on that table yeah it definitely has some issues with that this is one of the few uh, in, uh, films where you get to see a Harryhausen model non-animated, because when it's desk size, it gets grabbed off of the desk and put into things, <laughs> and literally, it's just a, a cut from animated version to actor holding the clay model they were animating a little bit ago and putting it inside a cage, and I'm like, hey! That's really, really cool, and you know, they didn't give Frank Puglia, or Puglia? Not sure how Not sure to pronounce his, uh, his last name, but he's playing the zoologist, Dr. Leonardo. They don't give him a whole lot to work with, but he really does kind of carry it around like he's having a football. <laughs> it's not. Oh, yeah. I, I kind of wish that they gave him like a by the both the legs instead of like <laughs> the action figure around the torso grip they gave him on that. But it's still like, like, hut, 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 hut. But there's not like a, a proper like. Like, hold this thing, keep its head supported, keep it from biting me, move it. He he doesn't have great form there, but it's fun to see the model as the model for just a moment. <laughs> and I do wonder, is that the scale at which they worked for, the, uh, for any of the stop motion? I'm thinking it is. Were there people just off uh, camera, like, watching this with great 
concern because if the actor breaks this, we can't animate the rest of the movie. I don't know. The jump cut was harsh enough. I think they animated a bunch of stuff and then did that scene. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and by the way, in terms of cast, we also have William Hopper as Robert Calder, who's our dashing young uh, Air Force officer, came back from Venus. He gets called Bob a lot. And, and, And once again, it's whoever, it's like... Whoever calls it first gets to be the head of the operation because he's the guy who came back from Venus, the only survivor of the mission he was commanding, and yet he's in the lead of the hunt for this this creature. Monster movies prove that a lot more a lot more military work uh, falls under the same rules as calling shotgun. <laughs> and we also have uh, Joan Taylor as Miss Marissa Leonardo, the zoologist's daughter. My granddaughter, almost a doctor. And which is kind of how they describe her in the uh, in the movie a couple of times, and of course the the beautiful young almost a doctor and the 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 handsome young Air Force officer wind up falling in love. They are trying to recapture this creature. Eventually, I think they give up trying to capture it alive, and they recognize they just have to destroy it. But it really do give us reason to feel sorry for this creature. It was taken off of his. Uh, of his own planet before he was even hatched, let loose in this environment, and then attacked and captured and studied, and he just wants to be left alone. Oh yeah, I mean they're they're throwing electric nets at him and shooting them, shooting him with bullets. Although that doesn't do much because he has no heart or lungs. Yeah, that's a weird one. He has a series of tubes. He's the internet. <laughs> My goodness, this monster is the internet. Instead of heart and lungs, and <sighs> how does that work? I don't know. I mean, what, what are veins? But but series of tubes. I mean, insects. There are insects and things that absorb oxygen in that way, as opposed to intake through a, a lung type organ. But there is a reason why they're really small. That oh, only is... works at a certain scale, given how much oxygen there is or isn't in our uh, in the atmosphere. Oh, this is an Ian does the math moment. Is that why it didn't like being put in a cage? Because it was too small an area to move around, which means that it, which needs movement in order to pump its fluids instead of being able to use a heart while staying stationary, it needed to move around and the cage didn't provide enough? Is that what the problem was? Is that why it first attacked when it was put in a cage? That would explain something. Oh, goodness, I'm retroactively figuring out parts of this film. <laughs> More motivations on the part of the monster. More reason to feel sympathy. Yeah. And we do see throughout, this is not an invulnerable, invincible monster. It does have a, I guess it's the opposite of a save the cat moment. It has a kill the dog moment. Yeah, it does have a kill the dog moment. It was just trying to find shelter and food, and the dog started, dog being a good dog and doing its job at protecting this farm, started barking and attacking it. So, yeah, it... That didn't prove that it was malevolent, but it did prove that it was dangerous, mm-hmm. that, that the creature was dangerous. And we also get the clear sense throughout this that it's not invulnerable. It has these weaknesses to electricity, to... Being stabbed being, with, a, with a pitchfork. <laughs> right. To, uh, and the, the, probably the, the most famous monster scene, or creature scene of this, is the, the wrestling match between the creature from Venus, and the elephant. It's one of the few times we really get to see a lot of 
Harryhausen animating a a real creature like this elephant. Yeah. Unless you count the octopus or the the six armed octopus from uh, it came from beneath the sea. Yeah, I don't quite count the six six octopus because it wasn't that was a creature out of scale. This is a, supposed to be a a creature in scale as reference point for the fantastical creature. And it's not perfect at that, but it's it's more something because it's supposed to move like itself. And if I really nitpick, the elephant isn't as successful as some of his stop motion animation. It doesn't quite work. But in the context of that scene and that action, it works really well. And the poor elephant does does not win this confrontation. No. But the creature from Venus takes some damage. Yeah, this is this is not a flawless victory. <laughs> this is this is it gets hurt, it goes off to lick its wounds. And the final confrontation between the US Army officer and or excuse me, the US Air Force officer and the Italian army units that are helping with this takes place in the Colosseum in Rome. Which is really cool. Which again, we get, you know, Harryhausen likes monsters who don't like classical architecture. <laughs> I had never pieced that part <laughs> and, together. And yeah, there's a fair amount of destruction. Uh, and eventually they um, they take down the uh, the creature. And they, they, they take it down with a bazooka. <laughs> yes, they do. A few shots from a bazooka. This is this is one of the another instance where like obliteration is the method. And it didn't require like a, a radioactive missile or anything. It's just no. let's hit it really hard. Effective. I had kind of been under the impression that this was maybe an Italian co-production or something because it is set in Italy and it has a lot and, of bits and scenes from there. Right. No, it's got its little travelogue elements too. But uh, apparently, it's just that you know the producer and director thought this that Italy had some great locations and let's start in Sicily and let's end up in Rome and it it works really well. It works really well. And this movie was released just about a year after. Earth versus the Flying Saucers. This was released in uh, 1957. So, yeah, they, they cranked these out much more quickly than these movies uh, tend to be today. There's definitely kind of a travel theme overall. It's got a spaceship. It's got boats. It's got cars and camper vans. It's got horse-drawn wagons and elephants in the street and cars and tanks. And there's a lot of human transportation and, like, movement and commerce going on around this putting it in italy there actually kind of works for that with its historical background it's like it's running into the history of of trade and it became a commodity and that's interesting from your description i'm really starting to see a theme come together here it's about people or beings having to operate or or some sense they're operating in places that are not their homes We've got the creature from Venus who is suddenly on Earth in Italy. We've got the U.S. uh, military officers who have to deal with being in Italy. We've got the kid who wants to be in Texas. (laughs) Good point. We've got the zoologist who is from Rome and is wandering around Italy with a trailer in a cage uh, looking for samples. relaxing or not, not quite sure why he was traveling. But. I don't know why he had a cage. 
And his daughter, my granddaughter, excuse me, his granddaughter was from America, I believe. Yeah, she'd she'd studied in America, which also helps explain why all the people near her speak good, well, (laughs) speak English well enough to make that the only thing spoken in the film. So there's that displacement theme with a lot of the characters in this. Oh, yeah. Two very different movies here, but I do think that they are linked by that nuts and bolts science fiction sense that they each have. And they're both sci-fi films that avoid the twist. So much sci-fi nowadays requires the twist, the the thing that means it won't end the way you assume it will. This is more about the how do you get to the ending we're hoping to get to <laughs> that you can already assume. It's just the getting there is the hard part. Earth has to figure out a way to stop the aliens. Earth has to figure out a way to recapture this thing they brought here and messed up the first time there is a a through line of the you know the fights at the end it's getting there and and i appreciate that yeah it wouldn't be hard to come up with twists for these movies either we mentioned one of them where oh the ufo pilots are us from the future or something uh-huh. or or 20 million miles to earth you know they they make such a big deal out of it's hard to breathe on Venus. Well, it's hard for the Venus creature to breathe on Earth, and that's oh. what destroys it. Well, no. Bazookas are what destroys it. <laughs> uh, you know, destroy a lot of things with one of those. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing what that'll do. Instead, they are, they're both very straightforward and procedural in that way. It's also, I realize this is also both things of aliens are susceptible to bullets. <laughs> or bullets of different caliber, but still. Right. Or at least susceptible to something that humans can field uh, against them. Huh. But they are of a type there. They are are straightforward, but they are, in that sense, a pure version of this type of narrative. And that is, for each of theirs, the, the craft encounter or the singular creature narratives. Both of these have nice, clean line versions in this that you could follow... And both are definitely inspirations to a lot of other things. I could see elements of the design of the creature from Venus in in the way Guillermo del Toro puts um, the fish guy from Shape of Water or how uh, they show some of the creatures in the Hellboy movies. Very much takes from the the creature from from Venus there with its humanoid frame but it's slightly different weight and walk and movement it's got that sort of thing that you see later creature creations kind of pull from and the fact that you can empathize with it is part of why they go for that because you look at it it's like it gets hit you're like oh but i think i'm rooting against you and that's kind (laughs) of where they put you like how much can they lean on that initial oh that you feel for it other movies will go entire stories off of the fact that you can have that response to seeing <laughs> a creature with such a smooth design here get hurt. So if the, the if if Earth versus the Flying Saucers was a, a military procedural, was Twenty Million Miles to Earth a an animal control procedural? It's like, yeah, we don't have anything against the creature, but we can't just let you run around loose. I guess it was. <laughs> they did do a food bait trap with surrounding it and throwing a net over the thing right and yeah, that was successful the, the electrified net worked i guess it was <laughs> huh so i've shown you two more ray harryhausen movies yay 
And I think it might be time for our final questions. I think it is. And we do have to ask them separately. So let's start with Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Screen or no screen? I'm going to say no screen. I really enjoyed it, but this is this is me getting very personal. More of the film's fun got zapped away when they started doing the mind uh, erasure brain scanny stuff. And maybe that's just because that's something that messes with me. It's something I've never found fun in my sci-fi. I've found it unpleasant when that sort of thing starts happening. I don't think it held up as well for a viewing. I think it had some great clips I want to show, but sitting through the whole thing just wasn't as grand for me. I can understand that. I'm going to say screen. I think it it holds up well enough for its running time, and it does show you where so many of these tropes, I think, came from or where they really developed in the, the 50s. If people are going to screen this, I am tempted to say, screen it, but make it a double feature. Oh. With the 1952 movie, Red Planet Mars. I don't think I know that one. Oh, I should show you that. It's, I can't say that it's uh, really um, in scope for our podcast because I didn't see it until maybe 10 years ago. Okay. And I think I first learned about it from Ken Holling's series, uh, uh, Welcome to Mars which is terrific, by the way. I'll link to that in the show notes. But that is, it, it is another movie that has a husband and wife scientists and involves communications via radio from the planet Mars. Oh, we might have a good, out of, we might have a good out of bounds or a good uh, Patreon special coming up. We then. might, well, it might be worth it because that is, I think it was based on a stage play Ooh. and it's not, military and fighting and that kind of uh, of um action epic it's more tension and philosophy but it has that same sort of origin point of scientist couple get radio messages yeah that's really okay. struck me seeing this like oh wait this looks do am i remembering watching this as a kid or am i remembering having seen red planet mars uh, two uh, two years uh, 10 years ago so um so yeah, I would say screen, consider screening it as a double feature with Red Planet Mars, but I think it's, it's worth it for the kind of seminal movie that it is. Yeah. Hmm. So that leaves revive, reboot, or rest in peace. I'm saying reboot. And I'm saying reboot because there's a piece of this that I, I know I was just saying how pure and perfect this was. This one's setup is great. And there's a, that pin I, dro- I dropped earlier about one of the points we made. I want to pull back out now because I think a new version of this could make a very great story if we explained why the alien's planet started to die. Because we don't need to send up more observation satellites right now for an Operation Skyhook in a modern-day set version. But you want to tell us we're putting up solar collectors for power? As energy? We've got something. Why are the aliens shooting down our new green energy system when it turns out that the aliens destroyed their own planet in a parallel to a global uh energy crisis and environmental issue akin to a global warming scenario that destroyed them 
and they take ours out of spite, we've got a reason to fight them. <laughs> and I think you could do this narrative with a, we expect you to be like us, and we won't narrative added to it. And I think it works for a new version set now. And the ingenuity aspect gets a new twist. And I liked that idea. And so I kind of want to say a reboot in that sense with instead of the purely military and radio technology focus of the science of that day, the energy and environmental focus of the modern science replacing it. That's interesting. I kind of like that. I was very much inclined to say, rest in peace. Because it's a movie that has already gotten its reboots. I've talked about how many other things are kind of influenced by, at very least, parts of Earth versus the Flying Saucers. And yet, there's still something, as you're saying, something clean and pure about the structure and about the overall story of, well, Earth versus the Flying Saucers. You don't get more <laughs> fundamental than that. That it would be interesting to see a modern take on that. And played straight, it, it'd be very easy to have somebody get the rights to do a remake and make it a joke. Play it straight and come up with reasons. I'm not, I don't know if I'm sold on the, um, uh, the details of what you uh, I presented. Go, but, I, went, I went slightly Captain Planet there, I know. But the idea of really give, getting more information about the motivations behind the aliens, as well as following the people defending Earth. I kind of like that. So, yeah, I'm, I don't need a reboot, but I'm definitely open to one. And I, I don't necessarily see any reason for a revival and a sequel uh, in this. I could, we could come up with one if we needed one, but I don't know. What is that? But other than uh, the flying saucers deal with Earth showing up, <laughs> which is a very different narrative. So we've got another movie to yeah. decide about too. Twenty million miles to Earth. Screen or no screen? Screen. Oh, really? I liked this one a lot more. I think that it's not hyper engaging but there is enough interesting here and there's enough there's enough playing and it's there's times especially with the kid where it gets silly and i almost wanted to start riffing it but other times it was playing itself so straight i got invested with it when when the entire group of people are trying to coax this thing out of the barn into a cage and one guy steps out of line and stabs it with a pitchfork. I was so mad at that one guy. I had to step <laughs> back and say, wow, I got invested fast. And that tells me that this movie did something right. And so I'm all for like, watch this. It's a great version of this sort of story. And it was fun. And that shows what a real character the creature is. Uh, how great a job Harryhausen and his team do with that. I felt sorry for it so many times. <laughs> I guess I'm going to say screen. You're less certain on this one. Yeah, this, the plot really doesn't pull me along in this movie as much as it does in some of the others, including Earth versus the Flying Saucers. I'm going to say screen, but it's mostly for the creature, for the terrific effects work, for the this creature's story also as it grows as it travels so yeah screen but it's not i guess it's not as strong a recommendation revive reboot or rest in peace my response here is rest in peace as you were saying with the other film there's a lot of other things that is, have taken inspiration from this and while this one's great i kind of want those other things to be able to take their inspiration and go off and do other things i don't know how you'd do this one again <laughs> quite the same way 
and I can't think of any shifts to it to make a new version. I guess you could do a revival where you go back and there's more of them on Venus, but that feels like it's so separate at that point that I wouldn't even... I I don't know if it has to be connected. So I kind of want to just let it be and say rest in peace. Yeah, I was tempted to say revive because it would be interesting to see uh, a story in which you know, nobody has been back to Venus since the 1950s. And yet now in the 21st century, we're going back to Venus and finding more of these things. It's kind of a alien to aliens sort of relationship. Oh no, we were dealing with early yeah. rocketry. We would have left landing craft. <laughs> and yeah, and who knows what they could have learned from that. Yeah, how much junk did we litter the place with? But you're right. There's, they would be so separated that references to this as its prequel would be not much more than Easter eggs. <laughs> The return to Venus is run by the Italian space program, because they're the ones who had a monster corpse to be able to study. I like that. Okay, that's something. That's cool. Yeah, I'm going to say rest in peace for that as well. It's, um, it it may be worth watching, but I don't think it needs to be rebooted. doesn't need to be, we don't need a sequel for it. And that's going to wrap up Harryhausen month for 2021. Well, we have one more question still. We do. That's right. Which is what we saw of what what these two films tell us about Harryhausen's work overall. What's the what's the unifying thing that both of these kind of showed? What could we pull about what makes a Harryhausen film from these? Huh. And I know what mine is to start if we want. Yeah, go ahead. I was really blown away by the texture work. Yeah. The texture of what he was modeling made such a difference in these films. In Earth versus the Flying Saucers. He was doing smooth, clean design. He was doing these flying saucers with these extending center pillars, with these, you know, forming out of the bottom as pieces open up and drop out, ray guns from it, and it's all smooth and clean. And even in black and white film, it gave it that alien effect. This is part of why the the obvious foam rubber suits we have people pick up later felt wrong they were too textural they weren't as smooth as the model could be and that was really effective because it made them seem out of place and alien meanwhile the creature from venus is this scaled textured thing with the the whiskers that are full of hair like movement and the the skin that doesn't quite look right but it's got all these tiny little v's to it and this the eyes have a very different smoothness to them than the rest of the face which means you focus on them and it has that expressiveness the creature was built almost out of texture as much as form and so the fact that these things were sculpted with such detail of texture in them meant that that actually made them work when they were put into an environment even in black and white, they had solid form because they had surface. And I was really impressed by that. And that tells me, like, as we as I was looking back at the at the bits we saw from even earlier Harryhausen, it wasn't quite as detailed as it was in these two. So that's something we're seeing get even more pronounced over time in Harryhausen's work. I think my takeaway from these, it's it's related to what you were just describing, and it's about the contrast between these two movies. 
And it has to do with, with what Harryhausen is so good at. And that is, it really does show how stop motion animation is sort of a slow motion puppetry. And puppetry at its height is a kind of acting because you're bringing characters to life. And I think what we see in the creature in 20 Million Miles to Earth is we, we talk about Harryhausen creating these creatures, but what he's modeling in these isn't the creature, it's the behavior. Just like what, what humans do in movies, we don't call it being, we call it acting. It's about the action, it's about the behavior. And that's what brings a character to life. And that's what brings a Harryhausen creature to life. It's the way it moves, but it's also the way its expression changes, the way you see something catch its attention and it changes its sight line and it maybe flinches a little bit. All these very subtle, small moves make it a real character in the story. And... We see so much of that with the, the creature in 20 Million Miles to Earth. In Earth versus the Flying Saucers, I think he does a really good job with these flying saucers and the model buildings they crash into and things. Does a great job with those, but they're not as compelling as the, the, the living creatures that he's best known for. And I may have said, I may, I may have been quicker to say, yes, screen Earth versus the Flying Saucers, but. It wasn't because of Harryhausen's uh, special effects work necessarily. It was about the story, uh, the story itself. The reason I say, yeah, maybe you want to watch 20 Million Miles to Earth, it's because of the character that is the creature from Venus. I see what you mean, yeah. There's definitely more to him than there is to those flying saucers. And I think that's something we will see over and over again as we look at more Harryhausen movies. And we will get back to Harryhausen movies, but for now, this this wraps up a Harryhausen month for 2021. We'll be on to other things in a couple of weeks. This has been fun. It has, it has, and uh, and yes, a um, uh, a happy birthday again to uh, to Ray Harryhausen, 101st birthday this month. Well, we've just watched a bunch of movies about with uh, monsters and creatures, haven't we, Dad? We have quite a few. Oh. There's a set of animated creatures and monsters that were kind of important to me as a kid and still are a lot. Uh, why do I sense a millennial strikes back on the horizon? You do. <laughs> Keep that in your pocket for right now. But in the meantime, Dad, where can they find you online? Uh, most places you'll find me as by Matthew Porter. So you can go to bymatthewporter.com. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter as by Matthew Porter or on Twitch at by Matthew Porter. And at that website, you'll find links to other places you might uh, come across me. And Ian, where can people find you? I can be found on Twitter as ItemCrafting, on Twitch as ItemCraftingLive, and at ItemCrafting.com. And you can find the podcast itself online. You can find us on Twitter uh, at IMMPCast. And you can find us online at the website IMMProject.com. And that's where you'll find links to all of our back episodes. You'll find a link to our Discord. We'd love to hear from you there. Um, come in and join the conversation. Let us know what are some of your favorite Harryhausen movies or other creature movies from the, the 50s. And you'll also find our contact page if you want to 
get in touch with us there, along with a link to our shop if you like coffee mugs, t-shirts and things, and a link to our Patreon. Thanks very much to anybody who can support us there. It helps the podcast keep going. And if you do support us on Patreon, you get uh, additional audio content and other bonuses. But most importantly, we really appreciate all of you downloading this, all of you listening. If you want to support the podcast, be sure to tell your friends or give us a few stars uh, on the iTunes uh, uh, rating system. That helps other people find us. And in the meantime, go find something new to watch. <laughs>